Jewish audio on Kabbalah.org. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchai Shibogai, the laws of inadvertent transgressions <coughs> of negative commandments and the sacrifice that comes with them. Perek Chi'i, chapter 9. Here we come to a unique chapter dealing with special issues. And he says in this chapter, this is all based on the Chumash, Al-Chomesh Abedes may be Korban Osham. There's a special offering called an Osham offering, a guilt offering. Not the Osham Tolui, which we learned about before. Not the conditional guilt offering, which we learned about before. But who? The offering we're speaking about now, Hanikra, is called Osham Vadai, a definite, definitive, a certain guilt offering. Shari ain't above Mishum Suffolk, because it has nothing to do with doubt. A person knows clearly that he transgressed, or she transgressed, one of the following list of transgressions. Either the category called Al-Shifcha Harufa. Category one is having intimacy with a consecrated or betrothed maidservant and details to come. Vial HaGozel, or robbery, details to come. Vial HaMe'ilah, misappropriation of holy temple funds. We learned a whole long section about that earlier. And this is the guilt offering which we talk about, which comes along with that transgression. Vial Tumas HaNazir, and the Nazirite, who becomes impure in the process. He brings an Asham, and we learned about that earlier. Vial HaTzaras, and on leprosy. When he becomes purified from the leprosy, details to follow. Those are the five categories of this special, unique offering called Asham, or others call it Asham Badai, a certain Asham. Now, details, al-shivcha haruba, what, what do we mean when we say a consecrated or betrothed maidservant, ketzad, what's the deal? Habo al-shivcha haruba, someone who's intimate with a consecrated maidservant, and this is a very unique law, bein bizodin, whether one commits this intentionally, bein bishgoga, or one commits this inadvertently. This particular mitzvah is unique, makes no difference if it was accident or not. Maybe osham, this guilt offering must be brought for the process of atonement. Now, there are many conditions, who provided that. Shetia gedeila, that she is an adult, meaning past bat mitzvah, Umizida, and that she is committing this intentionally, or Birzena, and she is committing this wantonly, with her own free will. And Vitiya, Beula, Kidarka, and the intimacy should be a normal type of intimacy, or Bigamar and the intimacy should have come full circle, which means not just to begin the process and then suspend it, but full circle. Kedei, Shetilka, in order for him to be obligated to bring this special offering, she has to be in a position where she will receive the lashes, which is her punishment. Shanemar, as the verse says, Bikedes, Tia, there will be a full investigation, and he will bring his guilt offering. This is a very unique commandment. He, Leka, if everything fits into place, falls into place, she is liable for lashes under certain circumstances. Who may be carbon, but he brings an offering. Now, the commentaries explain that Shifcha Harufa is a woman who is half a Canaanite maidservant and half a free woman who is consecrated to a Hebrew slave. That is the condition that allows this scenario to come about. Now, he says in Be'ez, from the oral tradition we learned, that only under the conditions where she could be liable for lashes, those are the only conditions that could allow him to have to bring this offering. In any situation, where she would be exempt from lashes for any reason, he would be exempt from bringing this offering, which explains the note say why. This woman must be past the age of majority, aware of the transgression, and willfully participating. Otherwise, she could never be liable for lashes unless she was past the age of majority, unless she was aware, and unless she was a willful participant. Gimel, now, we know that she has to be past the age of majority, but how old does he have to be? If he is nine years old plus a day, which means on his ninth birthday, when a person celebrates their ninth birthday, they are one day into their tenth birthday. Shabal Shifcha Harufa, this nine-year-old who was intimate with a Shifcha Harufa, with this maidservant, she's obviously at least a little older than him, but he's at the minimum age of nine where intimacy means something. As we learned earlier, for a male, nine is the minimum age where intimacy has value. He, like her, she can receive lashes because she's passed majority. But who may be Corbin? And he, even at nine years old, brings an offering. We are all, it appears to me, Shane, maybe actually, I'll give that although he has the obligation to bring the offering, he doesn't actually bring it until he matures and he has full awareness. We explained in great detail previously in the laws of forbidden intimacies. What is the definition of this Shifcha Harufa that the Torah speaks about? Again, it's a very rare, very unusual scenario. And that this particular violation cannot be in effect unless the intimacy is a natural as compared to an unnatural intimacy and the intimacy is completed rather than just begun. Therefore, Imam Elisha, if two witnesses came and testified and said to him, we know you were intimate, we saw you were intimate with this Shifcha Harufa, with this consecrated maidservant who's half maid servant and half free woman, betrothed to a Hebrew slave. And he says, I was not intimate with her. 
Namor, he is believed. And he cannot be coerced or mandated to bring an offering based upon their testimony. Why? Because one of the conditions is that he has to complete the act. Only he knows whether he completed the act or not. The witnesses have no idea. The fact that he says, I was not intimate, it could mean, I did not complete the act of intimacy. If he would say, I didn't actually engage in intimacy, he would be contradicting the witnesses. One person cannot contradict two witnesses. However, being that he has an out here, he can actually be saying, I didn't complete the act. This only he knows. Hey, five. What if somebody repeats this transgression again and again? Does he have to bring a lot of guilt offerings again and again? He only has to bring one. For example, if somebody intentionally and wantonly has this relationship with this unique type of maidservant, or it was inadvertent, and here, this particular mitzvah, intentional and inadvertent happens to be the same. This is unique. And then he found out about it. He realized it. And then he again was intimate with her this time, not realizing that it was a prohibition. And then he found out. And a hundred times it was concealed from him that it was a transgression. And all of the above, he gets away with one guilt offering. He receives atonement for all of it. On the intentional transgressions within this realm. On the inadvertent transgressions within this category. When does this apply that you can have intentional and inadvertent transgressions? Repeat it. Even though he realized it in the middle and forgot again. And again and again he violated. When does this apply that one offering covers all if it was one maidservant that we're talking about, only one human being? But if it was many maidservants that he committed this transgression with, I feel even in one state of unawareness. One thing is clear that he has to bring this guilt offering for every maidservant separately. What if he had intimacy with this maidservant, consecrated maidservant? He set aside his guilt offering. He dedicated it. He designated it. He said, this is my guilt offering. And then he was intimate with her again after he had designated his guilt offering. He's liable for each and every time. Why? Because the fact that he set aside and designated his guilt offering, that creates a separation. And it's like as if somebody already offered, setting aside is like offering. And then he was intimate again, which makes it separate. If he was intimate five times in one state of unawareness, and then he found out about one of them. And set aside his guilt offering. Then, a little later, he found out about the second time that it was forbidden. He set aside a second guilt offering. Even though the act was done in one long state of unawareness, but the realization came in stages. Being that it only came to his attention after he set aside the offering. It's almost like, or it's like, somebody is intimate after he set aside the offering. Remember, and he repeats again, that uniquely, the law in this particular scenario is that intentional and inadvertent are all the same. That's a rare mitzvah. So now we've covered the details of the idea of Asham, Shivcha, Charufa, which we have a little tea, I made a bracha earlier. Category two, which we enumerated in the beginning of this chapter, is Alagozel, robbery. And of course, the details of robbery are yet to come. We haven't dealt with all of these kind of laws of damage and tort and stuff and financial. Ketzad, but how does it relate to this offering? Anybody who has at least a pruto, which is the lowest coin of money that belongs to someone else in one form or another, it's not his money. He could have stolen it. He could have robbed it. He could have stolen it. What is the difference between robbing and stealing? Robbing is blatantly with a rifle. And stealing is you sneak in and you steal it. Then she had yet Whether he, the person gave him an object to guard and then he never gave it back. Or the person lent him something and he never paid it back. And he should talk it was a partnership. And he shouted, it makes no difference. The bottom line is, I have your money. And then the next step is that the demand is made and the guy says, I have no idea who you are, leave me alone, I never heard of it. What money? And then, Benishba, the person was forced to take an oath, and he did so. Ashakar falsely, whether intentionally, or inadvertently. This is the scenario which leads up to this Osham of robbery. And he said, maybe Osham al he has to bring a guilt offering for his transgression. It's actually a whole set of transgressions. The transgression is he stole something, he denied it, he swore falsely. This is the guilt offering of robbery. This is spelled out in the Torah, that of course a sacrifice is not enough to make atonement until he makes restitution. He actually has to give back the money to the owner of the money. You can't have somebody else's money, and he has God to forgive you. There's also a penalty of a fifth that has to be paid. That, the payment of that penalty does not hold back the atonement process. 
When he's going to be obligated to make this oath connected to this guilt offering. So we're not going to repeat those laws. And in what setting will he be obligated to bring many guilt offerings in line with the many oaths? And in what setting he'll only be obligated to bring one, says the Rambam, if you want to know those details. Look up earlier where we covered this, and that would be in the laws of oaths, chapter 7 and 8. Ches, the next category is al for trespassing holy temple property, using holy temple property for one's own, as one's own, and we learned a whole extensive section about this. But as it relates to this sacrifice, bottom line is, if somebody benefits from holy, temporary, holy temple property, property inadvertently, number one, he has to make restitution. He then brings this guilt offering, which we talked about again and again and again. He escapes and receives atonement. We explained this in great detail earlier in the laws of trespassing, that the offering and the principal restitution holds back the atonement. But the one-fifth penalty does not hold back the process of atonement. Here's an interesting and unique law. If there are five dishes prepared, all these dishes have within them an item that belonged to the Holy Temple. But there are five dishes, and he ate all of them in one lack of awareness. He had no idea that any and all these dishes had Holy Temple food in them. Even though it might be from one offering, could be a piece of meat, went into five different dishes. He had a chef for the day. The chef used the same offering in five gourmet meals. As long as every... Sitting, every meal that he ate had at least the value of a puta or more. Chayav Ashram, he's culpable, he's liable to bring this offering, guilt offering, for his participating and consuming each of the dishes. Each of these meals. It's the same sacrifice. It's the same lack of awareness. The answer is because only in this situation the five different dishes separate them. They become like different types. Even though had it been intentional, the chorus, the cutting off of the soul, would not be repetitive. There's an additional stringency when it comes to the laws of trespassing. Because the Torah, the law, created someone who causes others to derive benefit just as one who benefits himself they can connect for a long span of time and another aspect of it is that if the proxy does what he was told to do on behalf of the one who sent him the one who sent him is obligated many of these conditions do not exist with other prohibitions anyone who is obligated to bring this certain guilt offering he always has to know first he has to be aware that he sinned and only then can he bring his offering but if he offered the offering before he ascertained that he did something wrong then he found out that he did something the offering doesn't count the knowledge and awareness has to precede the offering Furthermore, the Rambam tells us another rule that this is unique that any transgression where this certain guilt offering is mandated, all of the scenarios above. Whether one is a king, one is a army chaplain, the anointed Kohen who is in charge of army chaplaincy, a Shar Amhoretz, or maybe he means a high priest himself, a Shar Amhoretz, or other civilians, regular people, regular Joes, Shoven by everybody is equal Pasqual. Yeah, I believe here Kohen Mashuach means a high priest. Okay. Meshuach Milchoma is what I was talking about, the army chaplain. Now, next situation, any transgression where one is liable to bring this certain guilt offering in this topic, if he becomes uncertain as to whether he actually did it or not, maybe yes, maybe no. In this case, there is no offering mandated for uncertainty. Therefore, if he was not sure whether he trespassed temple property, and he's not obligated to bring any offering, as we explained earlier in the laws of the that a doubtful Meila does not require an offering. The closing, no, the almost closing, the 12th of 13. The plot thickens. What if somebody had a piece of something, a regular meat, let's say, and a piece of holy meat? He ate one of them, and you do he does not know which one he ate, either the holy or the private or the regular, but he's exempt. He didn't make the second piece, so he certainly consumed it. Maybe here he certainly brings the guilt offering, because between the first and the second, he certainly violated it. What if somebody else came along and ate the second? So he ate the first, maybe he did violate, maybe he didn't. Another guy comes, his friend, and he eats the second, maybe his friend violated, and maybe he didn't. They're both exempt, because as individuals, maybe they didn't violate. Closing paragraph. What if there was a piece of fat? That was forbidden fat because it's forbidden. Nothing to do with the sacred. There was a piece of sacred. It was forbidden because it belonged to the Holy Temple. One of them, they looked alike. Maybe Hashem told him, he has to bring the guilt offering of doubt we learned about much earlier because of the forbidden fat. Because he may or may not have eaten forbidden fat. 
The fact that he may or may not have violated the temple consecration doesn't mandate an offering as we just learned. He ate the second piece. So now, not only did he certainly consume forbidden fat, he also certainly trespassed holy temple property. Maybe he has to bring a sin offering for the fat. Why? Not a conditional offering. He's certain that he consumed fat. He has to bring a standard sin offering. And a certain guilt offering from the Ilah with regard to the trespassing Allah for the sacred. What if not he but somebody else ate the second? Maybe not only does he have to bring the conditional guilt offering because maybe he ate fat, maybe he didn't. So did the second guy. Maybe the second guy ate fat. Then it's forbidden, maybe he didn't. What if there was a piece of forbidden fat that was private? And then a piece of forbidden fat that was holy. He ate one of them. Maybe one thing is for sure he brings us in offering. Because he surely consumed forbidden fat. After he found out about the first. Now he has to bring two sin offerings because he ate fat and fat. And he found out in the middle. And then he also trespassed for sure. But if somebody else came, not he and ate the second. The first one brings us in offering, because he certainly consumed forbidden fat. And the other one brings us a sin offering, because he, the second person brings us in offering, because he certainly consumed forbidden fat. Milvan, and that's all, because you don't bring for doubt of trespassing. We were ready to explain the laws of forbidden foods. How it works, the rationale of why the prohibition against benefiting from consecrated property can fall in addition to forbidden fat, because in general, one prohibition does not come on top of another. And the answer is, we learned earlier that there are categories. This falls into the category of Easter Mosif, of an additional prohibition, because it expands the scope of prohibition, because forbidden fat is only prohibited to be eaten, while this is forbidden to eat and to benefit from consecrated food. And the same goes for anything similar in all the above. End of chapter 9. Rambam, Mishneh Torah. Hilchei Shigogai is the laws of sacrifices associated with inadvertent transgression. Pedic Asidi, chapter 10. And now we enter into a new category of inadvertent, or not necessarily as we will see inadvertent, but for a new category of inadvertent sacrifice. Aleph 1, Shisha, there are six conditions where mitzvah it is a mitzvah, it is incumbent, Shiyakribu, that the perpetrators of these conditions should offer Korban an offering which is a sliding scale offering. It goes up and it goes down depending upon economic ability. Sliding scale, adjustable. Meaning, if the person is wealthy or has ability, financial ability, they bring an animal. If not, they bring something which costs less, two doves, and in some cases, even less than that, some flour. So the Torah, in these cases, is very sensitive to the financial ability or lack of ability of the particular person who committed these acts. And first he enumerates categories. Hametzeda, somebody who was stricken with leprosy. Biblical leprosy, we're talking about the leprosy discussed in the Bible, not today's skin disease called leprosy, but biblical leprosy, which was a byproduct of Loshon Hora, of gossip and other transgressions. So at the close of that whole cycle, one brings this offering. Ba'yeled, that's a woman who gives birth. At the close of her cycle, she brings this offering. Ve'hanishba, shvua, so'edos, the next situation. And these situations are not at all related to each other. They're just different situations. Somebody who takes an oath, saying, I don't have any information to testify on this subject, and it was not true. He did have information. He just didn't want to get involved. Bain bezodain, bain bishgogo, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And here, this is one of the big exceptions, where this sacrifice is brought, whether the person transgresses this intentionally or unintentionally. Wow. Category four is Bahanishba Shuas Bitri Lashekir Bishgoga. If somebody inadvertently takes an oath which is false, saying he did do something, or he didn't do something, he will do something, or he won't do something, somebody's having conversation and says, Coffee is bad for you. He says, I swear I never drank coffee. And it was not true. But he didn't realize at the moment that the coffee that he drinks is coffee. He thought it was like dishwater. So that's called a Shuas Bitri, and we learned some of these in great detail when we learned the sections of oath, but here we're focusing on the sacrifice. Five, and in some situations they enumerate five and six together. Here the Rambam chooses to separate them, although they're very much the same. Five is Vahatome, somebody who is ritually impure. Sha'och al who ate holy food, sacrificed food, or what have you. Bishgoga inadvertently, or a sister situation, Vahatome, someone who's ritually impure, Shanikhlas Lamigdash, that entered into the holy temple, Bishgoga inadvertently. And this is the reason that some enumerate five and six together in some situations, in the mission and so on, because of the fact that these are so similar. In fact, we deal with this in the Rambam as well, he groups them together, but these are here enumerated as six different experiences. Okay, base. Now, in the next and following paragraphs, he's going to give us definitions of these six categories.
He begins with Korban Hayeledes, the offering brought by a woman after childbirth. If she was affordable, if she was economically sound, then she brings a sheep of its first year of life as a burnt offering. And sheep cost money. Even if you go to Costco, the sheep cost money. Well, then and then she brings a younger or older dove, pigeon, as a sin offering. That's if she can afford it. But if she can't afford it because she doesn't have enough money to buy a sheep, so her obligation of an offering descends. That's the expression, ole, the yored goes up and down. And she brings instead of a sheep and a dove, she brings two doves. One becomes the burnt offering instead of the sheep. And one remains the sin offering. Furthermore, I'm bringing out something interesting. We know, as we learned earlier, that along with the sheep comes a list of libations. You have wine libations. You have other libations. The libations cost money, too. Wine doesn't grow on trees. It actually grows on vines. Because she can afford the sheep. Because there was a sale on sheep. She had a coupon. But she can't afford the wine that comes along with it or the other libations. This in and of itself is enough to propel her into the category of a poor person. So her obligation goes downward. She can bring the less expensive offering. The next category, Hamad Sayyid, oh, by the way, it has been said, and this is a basic teaching. A woman who gave birth, she did a wonderful thing. Baruch Hashem, she did a mitzvah. She brought a child into the world. There's nothing greater. I understand she's bringing a, a burnt offering. Very nice. A burnt offering is, in a sense, a thank you offering, in a sense. But why is she bringing a sin offering? What sin did she commit? What's going on here? So the, the initial explanation given is that at the peak of labor, at the most difficult mo- moment, very often a woman will say, I swear I'm never doing this again. If I do this again, shoot me. She has to bring a sin offering for that utterance. That's an interesting twist on why she would bring a sin offering. Because uh, sometimes we say things that we don't really mean. Because a year later, she's having another one. What is the story with the leper, the biblical leper, when he comes full cycle and experiences his purification? At that time, the Torah mandates that maybe Shalosh Behemoth has to bring three animals, may handle these three snake and two sheep. One is a burnt offering, and one is a guilt offering. In addition to that, a sheep for a sin offering. So we have three sheep, guilt offering, a burnt offering, guilt offering, sin offering. Now, three sheep cost a lot of money. What if he's a poor leper? If he can't afford these three sheep, maybe instead of three sheep, he can bring two doves and a sheep. Two doves, one for the burnt offering, one for the sin offering. What's left? The guilt offering. But the sheep has to be. The guilt offering. Guilt offering has to be a sheep. Valid. Next scenario. When somebody takes an oath that he doesn't know testimony, somebody inadvertently makes a statement, I never did or I won't. He says, I won't have coffee. And then an hour later he has coffee. The same law applies. If somebody inadvertently in a state of impurity enters the holy temple or in a state of impurity consumes the holy food, maybe he brings chizba, either a sheep or a goat. Kishar, hachatois, hachatois, like all other sets in offerings. What's different? What's different is that this one is sliding scale. We may know the masegas if he can't afford it. Maybe stay tatein. Instead of the animals, he can bring two doves. One burnt offering, one sin offering. We may know the masegas life here. If he can't even afford the doves, maybe asira soifa says he can bring a tenth part of the measurement called an apa, a fine flour, which is much cheaper than two doves. Especially if you buy it from Ralph's and not from he hakruya minchas This is called the meal offering of the sinner, which we learned earlier. What's his sin? His sin is he swore falsely. In one form or another, we learned all the detailed applications of these laws. Right now, we're just learning the category. Now he says, in, "Hey, all the above offerings are spelled out clearly in the Torah." And the obligation is clearly and succinctly detailed. The exception is the person who was ritually defiled, who inadvertently, unknowingly, he forgot he was ritually defiled. He entered into the holy temple. Or sister scenario, she ate of the holy food. This is not that clearly enumerated in the Chumash, although it is enumerated in the Chumash. What does it say? Because this is what is written there. If a person shall sin, he'll hear the sound of an oath, etc. Or a person will touch anything in a state of impurity. Or a person who will swear 
to verbalize with his lips, etc. When he's guilty of one of these transgressions, etc. From the oral tradition, we learn that the fact that the Torah talks about a person who is in a state of spiritual defilement has to bring a sacrifice. It's not just because he was spiritually defiled, but only when in a state of spiritual defilement he enters into the holy temple. That's the transgression. What are you doing in the base of if you're impure? And he forgot he was impure. Even though this is actually taught to us from traditional these fine details, but it's almost as if it's written clearly. Because the Torah specifically tells us that somebody who intentionally does one of these things, entering into the holy temple or eating of the holy in a state of impurity, receives the cutting off of the soul punishment. When it comes to eating holy, it says, If a person will eat meat of the slaughtering of the peace offering, or somebody who enters into the holy temple in that state, that soul will be cut off from amongst the congregation. Because he defiled the holy sanctuary of God, and he didn't previously have the ritual of red heifer applied, of the sprinklings of the red heifer, which is the way you undo this state of impurity. obligates the punishment of the cutting off of the soul for defilement of the holy temple and its holy objects. He also spells out the offering that is brought for the inadvertent violation of this. Now we learn an interesting law. What's the deal with husband and wife? If a woman is obligated to bring an offering, does she have to go to the base of the herself? She had a baby. Who babysits? So the rule is that marriage is a partnership. Any offering that a woman is obligated to bring, she can send her husband to bring. Not a problem. Because husband and wife are one unit. So now this presents a new problem. What if the wife is independently wealthy and the husband is independently poor? You have a woman who came into the marriage with limited with money, designated not for the husband or somebody gave her money, not for the husband. She's got a billion dollars and he's a schlepper. That's SHL. If he was a poor man, maybe Karbanoni, he brings a poor man's offering, no matter what she is. If he was wealthy, maybe Al Yodea, Karban Asher. He brings because of her a rich man's offering, which means the fact that he's wealthy and she lives in poverty because he has other wives and whatever the situation makes no difference. She follows his economic status. Now he says a different situation when somebody is not obligated to support someone, but does so anyway. A person can bring for his son or his daughter or for his male servant or his female servant the offering of a poor man, even though he's not poor, because they are poor. And he's doing them a favor. And he can cause them to eat of these offerings. And there are many more detailed laws in this. Subject. Zayin Amelech, the king, the Kayin Mashiach, and the anointed priest, Nevi'in, bring Karbon and their offering, Ashwas Aedos, as well for a false oath regarding testimony, a Ashwas Bitri, or a false oath regarding utterances, Ayat Tumas Mikish Rekadash, or the impurity of the Holy Temple, or the impurity of the object of the Holy Temple, Kishar Hejjah, is just like the regular people. Shoechilah Kakasim, Karbon Melech, Karbon Hejjah, and Karbon Hejjah, Mashiach, Karbon Mashiach, because the Torah does not differentiate the offering of the king and the offering of the anointed priest, Ella Bamitzvish, Chayab Mashkagosim, Chataskua, only with mitzvahs, where there is a set sin offering, not like in this case where there is a sliding scale sin offering, the application is the same. To make Shabiyano, as we explain, Abba, the Karbon Elevated, Kulam when it comes to the sliding scale offering, whether it's a king or a high priest or a regular Joe, the obligation is exact amount the same. As we explained earlier in the laws of oaths, when will the obligation kick in for the oath regarding testimony? The guy says, I have no testimony. Or for an oath concerning a false utterance, when will he be exempt? We already explained all of these details. And how many times he's obligated to bring more than one offering if there was more than one oath? In one situation, he'll only be obligated one offering. Abayah says that I'm in the upcoming laws of those lacking atonement. In other words, there's an offering that has to be made before the atonement kicks in. That's a whole set of laws that's coming up next. I will explain, says the Rambam, under what detailed situations the woman who gives birth will be obligated to bring Ramatseira and the leper, the biblical leper, Karbanes Harbin, many offerings, and in what scenario they'll all be obligated to bring one offering, says the Rambam. That's coming up in the next set of laws. What if somebody, any situation where the Torah mandates that the intentional commission of this transgression bring an offering, just like the unintentional, however, that's only if it's intentional or inadvertent. But if it was out of his control, no choice, 
Not that he forgot, but someone's putting a gun at his head. Potter minak arbin, when somebody is an onus, when somebody is coerced to do a transgression, there is never an offering. Certainly, all other transgressions, where by and large the average transgression only has a sin offering brought when it's committed inadvertently. We learned a little bit about some exceptions here today. So therefore, with them, surely, if he was being forced or coerced to do it, Potter is exempt. Test 9. Now we come to situations of changed economic status. Or if a person was wealthy and they became poor, they made the wrong investment. Or if somebody was poor and became wealthy, they made the right investment. The old saying, it doesn't take a lot of time to make a lot of money, it doesn't take a lot of time to lose a lot of money. It's instant. If somebody sets aside money for the sheep of his sin offering, because at that time he could afford a sheep, and then suddenly he says, Oh, I need the money. I gotta buy food. Because his economic situation changed. He can bring the goat, because a goat is cheaper than a sheep, and he can change the money for a goat, and use the rest of the money. So there is flexibility. If he set aside for a goat, but he it's fine, he can derive benefit from the money, if in this case it's cheaper. So there is flexibility. If somebody needs the money, he can buy a less expensive animal. The plot thickens. What if somebody set aside money to bring an animal because he can afford it? Check. The handy and he became poor. His economic situation went down, went south. In that case, even though he already set aside the money, he can purchase two pigeons, and he can exchange the money for the pigeons, which means the sanctuary is removed from the money and goes on to the pigeons. So the money becomes everything money. He can use the money. What if he set aside money for, a, for two doves, or pigeons, and he became even poorer? Things can always be worse. Cheer up, things can be worse. I cheered up and things got worse. So here he went from dove to flour to meal. It's fine. Let him bring the less expensive offering, which is the tenth part of the eighth of flour. Let him exchange the money to the flour. Let him use the money. A lot of flexibility. The same works in the reverse. If he was poor, he set aside money for the tenth part of the eighth for a little flour. That's all he can afford. And he became rich. He won the lottery. He made the right investment. Yosef Alei, he should add to the money. Be open by birds. He fish life. He set aside for birds. They actually became even wealthier. Yosef Alei, he should add to that. We have a kiss by seed and buy a sheep or a goat. I feel how you may reshade the Now, what if the person was about to inherit a lot of money? However, the fellow he's inheriting the money from is still alive. He didn't die yet, but any second he's dying. Alei, only he's still considered poor. Actually, almost may reshade until the person he's inheriting the money from will die. The Yoshenu, and then at that moment of death, the person acquires the inheritance. On the lighter side, they say that uh, misers make great ancestors. What if a wealthy man set aside a sheep or a goat, which is good, because that's what he should be setting aside, but not by woman that it became blemished. And then he lost his money. If he wants to, if he can buy a bird with the money which he gets from the blemished sheep or goat. However, and we learned this earlier as well, if somebody set aside a dove, a bird, and then it became unfit, he cannot exchange it for the money and then get the lower level, which is flour, meal, because we can never, there's no concept of redeeming a fowl. Fowls cannot, remake, cannot be redeemed. Instead, it just has to be left to die. Yudalaf, 11. Oshir, Shehifish, Chizbo. No, we learned that already. 12. Right, 12. Hifish, Ashir, so he set aside a tenth part of the measure of an ephah of meal, a flower, which is what the poor of the poor sets aside. The Hashir, he became wealthier. So what happens with this flower? Can the flower be redeemed? So he says, well, it depends. We learned this in great detail earlier. Until it goes into a ministering vessel in the holy temple, the ministering vessel will make it sacred. So if it's before it was placed in the holy vessel, it's like any other meal offering. It can be redeemed, and you can use it for everyday food. Why? Because it's still not sanctified. It has not yet been placed in the holy temple designated vessel. But once it is placed in that holy vessel, then he has to wait, which is a common expression. He has to wait until its shape is not recognizable, which is a day. And it should be taken out to be burned. Yudhim, closing paragraph in chapter 10. A wealthy man set aside a pair of doves to be sold. With the intent, to purchase with the money he will get from the sale. 
Kizbar, he's going to buy a sheep, a seira, or he's going to buy a goat. So that's why he set these pair of doves aside for to use the money they have. Add to it to buy a sheep or a dove. Vehani, and now he became poor. So what happens if he becomes poor? He goes back to bringing a pair of doves. Can he bring this pair of doves? No reason why not. Yovi came so he can bring the set. Even though originally the sanctity of this set of doves was only financial. Which could be pushed off to the side. Right now, this, these doves were not sacrifices. Because they were only financial. And the fact that they could have been sacrifices was removed, so to speak. Why should it not permanently be in a state where it can't be sacrifices? Because it's being put off and not being permitted to be a sacrifice. To begin with, was not an essential issue having to do with the doves. It had to do with the choice of the person. The doves were kosher. Now he likes it. Before he didn't like it. He wanted something better. Now he likes it. So therefore, it is acceptable to sell the, to, to use these doves now for sacrifice. What if a poor man offered the offering of a wealthy man, which he shouldn't have because he needs the money to eat? Does he fulfill his obligation? The answer is yes. He fulfills his obligation. Because if he chose to have self-sacrifice and bring a wealthy man's offering, so be it. It's his choice. Does it work the other way? The usher, Shehikir Karbanoni, can a wealthy man bring the offering of a poor man? He said, hey, I feel poor in my head. There's an expression in Torah, Ain oni a state of poverty is always in the mind. In the mind you either feel wealthy or in the mind you feel poor. It has nothing to do with what money you have. So here this wealthy man felt poor, so he decided to bring a poor man's offering. Can he fulfill his obligation? The answer is no. N-O. What part of the word no do you not understand? The N or the O. Le-Yosei does not fulfill his obligation. End of chapter 10. Ramba Mishnah Torah, Yochei Shigogis, the laws of sacrifices associated with inadvertent sin offerings, Pedek Achadosah, chapter 11. Aleph 1, having spoken earlier about the offering associated with impurity and entering into the base Hamikdash or consuming holy meat. So now the Rambam talks about a fascinating law. There is a major difference in connection with impurity having to do with the holy temple and its holy objects, which does not exist with any other mitzvahs for one which is punished with chorus when one commits it intentionally. Shakol Hakrisa is all of the mitzvahs punishable by Kores, cutting off of the soul. Kivan Sheshogar, the scenario is first, he didn't know. But Nagalai Basaif, and then he realized at the end, Shakhotar, then he sinned. And that's the normal condition. I didn't know. Whoops, I now know. Sacrifice. I didn't know. I now know. Sacrifice. And there is absolutely no requirement across the board for anyone to have known to begin with of what the reality was. Because the beginning of the story could be, I didn't know. Even if one did not know in the beginning of the story that there was a problem, he started off by not knowing anything, and in the end he realized that he committed a transgression, a offering is required, a sin offering. But in the case of impurity, where one was in a state of impurity and then one entered the base of Migdash, or then one ate of the holy sacrifice, in the case of impurity of the holy base of Migdash or its holy objects, where we learn there is a sliding scale offering brought. This sliding scale offering is never brought. Until he first has information that he was impure. And he also had information that this object is holy, like a sacrifice. Or he had information that this is the holy temple. But to begin with, he knew it, he was cognizant and aware of it. As well as knowledge and awareness at the end that he was impure and that it was a base on and that it was a holy object. So in that case, what doesn't he know? If he knows in the beginning that he was impure and this was a base on this was a holy sacrifice. If he knows at the end that he was impure and this was a base on this was a holy sacrifice. What didn't he know, Preto? The hell and time. In the middle, he lost consciousness, he lost knowledge of this fact. It slipped his mind. He forgot he was impure. Or he forgot this was holy. Or he forgot this was a base on Nigdash. But in the beginning he knew, and in the end he knew. Ketad, for example, Nitma became defiled with some kind of major impurity, such as a rodent. Venichna, such as a dead rodent, Venichna, and he entered one Nigdash into the base on Nigdash. Ayachach, he consumed the holy sacrifice. And then he realized that he ate. He realized that he was impure. He realized that he ate. And he realized that that which he ate was holy. There where he's standing is holy. And in all of these scenarios, he's exempt. He has to know before he ate and before he entered. Ketzad, for example, Nitma became impure. The other Shnitma, he knew he became impure. And he knew this was the base of Nigdash, or he knew that this was holy. So he had full knowledge of his impurity, the base of Nigdash, and the sacrifice. And then the fact that he was impure just got away from him. And he forgot. Shnitma became impure. And he entered. Or he ate of the holy. 
He knew that this was consecrated food, but he was unaware that he was impure. That's one case. He knew that he was impure, but he was unaware that it was consecrated food. That's the second case. He was unaware of both the above. That's the third case. He knew that he was entering the temple, but he was unaware that he was impure. That's the fourth case. He knew that he was impure, but unaware that he was entering the temple. That's the fifth case. He was unaware of both the above factors. That's the sixth case. How do we know that this law, that he has to first be aware, then be unaware, then be aware, is in fact so, something that doesn't exist by any other Sin offering, Shari Bishgarish, Gogit Bishgarish, Gogit, now because what's concerning other sin offerings, the Torah says, Basesa, when he does and commits, Achas one, Mimitz for Sashem of the commandments of God, Asher Leisa, Yosena, which should not be done by Asher, and he's guilty. Or, then he finds out, the verse indicates that as long as he finds out at the end that something went wrong, that is enough to obligate him to bring a sacrifice. Even though he never had knowledge in the beginning. When it comes to the impurity of entering the base of Migdash and eating of its holy foods in a state of impurity, whenever it says, it will be concealed from him. Yet he knew, the Asher man is guilty. Well, if he didn't know, what does he mean he did know? So we learn, first he knew, then he didn't know. He has to have knowledge first, he gave himself knowledge last, and a lack of knowledge in the middle. Bayes, Nikma, he becomes impure. The other, he knew Shinikma, he was aware that he became impure. The other, Shazakay, he knew this was holy. He knew he wasn't a Bayes, he knew all that, so what didn't he know? Abel, the of Nikma, he wasn't sure which situation caused him to become impure. He wasn't sure exactly what he did that made him impure, the type of impurity. As we will explain later in the book of Purity, there are various types of ritual impurity, each type with different laws and so on. These categories are referred to as Avahatuma, the father of impurity, and it could be a rodent, it could be this, it could be that. There are various possibilities. He knew he was impure, but he wasn't sure exactly what made him impure. Which Avahatuma, which Category one of impurity made him impure. And he's a chayyah korban. He's obligated to bring a sacrifice. Half a piece of yodah betchilah. Basically, he wasn't sure which category of impurity exposed him to impurity. Now the other should tell me the main thing is that he knew it was impure. And he has to show me the yodah betchilah. So there was a knowledge of impurity in the beginning. But if there was another scenario where he simply the whole set of laws of impurity escaped him. Again, for example, shenitma bicha adosha minasheretz. The example that he brings here is the halacha says that the minimum volume that one needs of the carcass of a crawling animal is the size of a lentil. That halacha escaped him. Well, the other kashir or bashir, he didn't know the size of the minimum impurity. I'm sorry. Uh, I lost my place again. He knew that a carcass of a rodent makes one impure. What he did not know is the minimum volume. He touched this rodent, clawed it all. Or another scenario, he ate of the sacrifice. And then he ascertained, he found out, that he did touch this carcass of the rodent. At least a lentil size minimum. He's unsure if he's obligated to bring a sacrifice or not. Another situation of lack of knowledge simply. There was somebody who never saw the Holy Temple, never knew the parameters of where it is. If he became impure, and he knew he became impure, and he entered into the base of Nigdash, he had no idea that this was the base of Nigdash. Somebody told him, Oh, you're in the base of Nigdash. He said, This is the base of Nigdash. And then he ascertained that this is the base of Nigdash. If this is a doubt in Yudia, if the fact that most of the world knows there's a Holy Temple, he doesn't know. Most of the world knows where the Holy Temple is, and he doesn't know. That's what his lack of knowledge was. He doesn't know something that the whole world knows. The royal leader Rambam says it appears to me, which is the expression that Rambam used when it's his chiddush, it's his contribution to halacha. She'elu hachayovim karben misafik einam abiyim karben. That those who are obligated to bring a doubtful sacrifice, because we're in doubt, because in the Talmud they never solve this question, they never resolve it. Shemayach nisul chulin. Mazar says the Rambam when in doubt, better don't bring it. Why? Why shouldn't I bring a sacrifice? Because if one is not obligated to bring a sacrifice, one will be guilty and culpable of bringing a non-sacrifice into the holy temple. The payment and the Rambam says if you will challenge this and say, wait a minute, didn't we learn earlier that there are cases where? There is a fowl, a bird, a dove. We're not sure if it has to be brought or not. And yet we said earlier, 
bring it but don't eat it? Why over here shouldn't we also bring it and don't eat it? The answer is because the situation is different there. The person who has to bring that fowl cannot be atoned for until he does. Therefore, when we're unsure, we should bring it and just not eat it but burn it. But here, there is no situation where one is lacking atonement, where one can never enter into the base until one gets his atonement. And it may be called It's best not to bring the sacrifice when one is in a state of doubt. Okay. Somebody who becomes impure in the temple courtyard must, at some point in time, early in the game, know that he became impure and that this is the best And then, if that fact became concealed from him later, that he became impure, remembers it's the best Or vice versa, he becomes the he did not forget that he's impure. Both became unknown. He has to bring a sliding scale offering. As long as he remains there, long enough, as we explained in the section of entering into the Holy Temple, where he explains that a person who becomes impure is liable if he remains in the base of English, long enough for him to recite a certain verse. And they bowed with their faces to the ground on the floor, prostrating themselves and giving thanks to God who is good and whose kindness is everlasting. That's the translation of the verse that one needs to be in the base of English long enough to be able to say in order to be considered violating the state of impurity or violating the law of not being in the base of English in a state of impurity. Dalit for Misha Kimayatsmib amazed somebody who contaminated himself with ritual impurity intentionally. But he didn't wait the minimum time. We're unsure. If Shir, whether that time, minimum time limit, minimum time limit is only for someone who is there not. By choice, by Aplanese, or even intentionally. If this was concealed from him, the Yotz, and he went forth with the Shah, he did not remain. And the Navy Carving does not bring a sacrifice, because we're not sure. Azara himself shall also be suspended himself in the air of the courtyard. We learned earlier in many such situations. We're not sure if the airspace of the courtyard is like the courtyard or not. Therefore, he does not bring the offering out of a state of uncertainty. Somebody who's unsure if he entered into the Holy Temple, or somebody who's unsure if he ate of the Holy in a state of defilement, this kind of uncertainty never results in a conditional guilt offering. Because one does not bring a sacrifice for a state of not knowing Elabicorus. Only with regard to a transgression whose intentional violation could result in curses, and the unintentional violation would result in a set sin offering. This is not a set sin offering, this is a sliding scale sin offering. Six, somebody who had two pathways before him. One pathway was clearly established that it was an impure pathway. You could not walk that pathway without becoming impure, where the corpse was across the whole pathway, slightly buried so one didn't see it. The Echotoid and one pathway was pure, and he wasn't sure which is which or which one he walked. What if he walked the first pathway? See, what we're doing here is we're crossing over into the laws of purity and impurity, which are coming up soon, long, complex, but here, these cross over into the laws of sacrifices, so that's why we're learning them. He walked the first path, so he then walked the second path, so ultimately he walked on both paths, but at the time that he walked the second path, he forgot that he walked the first path, and now he forgot he was impure. So he may be impure, actually certainly impure, because he walked both paths, but when he walked the second path, he forgot he walked the first path. Then he entered into the Holy Temple, he's certainly impure, he ate holy food, he's certainly impure. Chayav, he's culpable. Even though he didn't certainly know about a state of impurity, because he didn't know which path it was, but ultimately he was impure, even though when he walked the second path, he forgot that he walked the first path. Because he wasn't conscious of the fact that he walked both paths. Because when he walked the second path, he forgot that he walked the first path. The Apa became nevertheless, Chayavchatas, he's liable to bring a sin offering. Shemixas Yidiyah, Kechol Yidiyah, the revelation, the Chidush, the contribution here, is that a little bit of knowledge is like a lot of knowledge. He knew he walked the path. Halakbarish, he walked the first path, and he entered into the Holy Temple. At that point in time, he may or may not be impure. Zion, he's our shlishi vishvi b'tovah. What if he sprinkled the sprinklings of the red heifer, which people use to make themselves pure after exposed to death on the third and seventh day? B'tovah, and he immersed in the mikvah. So that would revert him back into a state of ritual purity. V'achar shenich nesmol migash, and he went into the base of migash. Halach b'sheni, then went on the second path. Remember, one of those two paths are impure. He wasn't sure which one. V'chazav shenich nesmol migash, and he again went into the base of migash after having gone on the second path, which may or may not be the one with the corpse. Chayav, he's guilty, he's culpable. Why? Because he went the first time around, had the stuff sprinkled on him, became pure, went the second time around. Because one of the two times he certainly was guilty, either the first time or the second time, depending upon which pathway it was. Because the first time he went on a pathway that might have been impure, then purified himself, and the second time he went on a pathway that might have been impure. One of the times he went on a pathway that was impure, either the first or the second. Even though he's not sure that he was impure to begin with, how do we say he meets this requirement? Because each pathway is doubtful. Here our sages established that a doubtful knowledge is good enough. 
And two people said to him, Nechnasi, the Hey, you in the state of impurity, we saw you entering into the base of Migdash. And he says to them, I did not. Nechnasi, I did not. Nechnasi, he is believed. How could he be believed contrary to two witnesses? The whole system of Torah is built on witnesses. Vayne may be called, he does not have to bring an offering. Why? This is the concept of Migoy. If he wanted a lie, he could have told a better lie. Shemirza, had he wanted to, he could have said, I did it intentionally. Do me something. Because the fact that he did it, he claims he did it intentionally, has no, has no effect on the witnesses who didn't warn him. So therefore we believe him to say he didn't do it. If the witnesses says, you were in a state of impurity, when you entered into the holy temple, and before our very eyes you became defiled, and you knew you were impure, even though this happened a long time ago. Because a long time passed, he could have, had he wanted to lie, say to them, yes, you're right, but I already immersed in the mikvah. And therefore, because he did contradict the witnesses, and he says, I never became impure. Maybe he does bring a sacrifice. Why? Because the witnesses establish something, and the witnesses have to be believed when there's no alternative. How do we deduce this? Because if witnesses testify that he violated something, in a case of severe violation, he could be killed with capital punishment. How much more so? That they could bring him to a much lighter experience. And that is the sacrifice. Because here, there's nothing that he could have said that does not deny and contradict that which the witnesses say. Because he said, I never contracted impurity. And therefore, we, could, we take the word of the witnesses over his. The final paragraph in this chapter. When one became defiled in the base on Nigdosh, one became defiled, defiled and entered the Holy Temple, or one became defiled and ate of the Holy Sacrifice, where he knew about it in the very beginning, but he didn't know at the end. So at the end, he never realized that he committed a transgression. How does this atonement ever come about? The answer is, There is the goat of Yom Kippur, which is offered in the inner chambers, and the Yom Kippur experience itself. That brings atonement. And that it remains in a state of suspense until he ascertains. He'll be able to bring a sliding scale offering. That's if he didn't know, he's covered by the goat of the holy Kohen Gogol and by the Yom Kippur experience in case he never finds out. Until he finds out. What if he didn't know in the beginning? Then the goat that is offered in the outer chamber on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur, and bring atonement. What about a defilement where one was not aware not in the beginning and not in the end? Then the goats offered on regular festivals, and the goats offered on the new moon, bring atonement. And on the transgressions of the impurity of the Nigdash. And its holiness, if it was for Kohanim, then the bull of the high priest of Yom Kippur brings atonement. If the perpetrator was an Israelite, then the blood of the goat offered in the inner chambers and the Yom Kippur experience itself brings atonement. He makes atonement for the holy, from the impurities of the children of Israel. End of chapter 11.